Good morning, everyone. Glad to have you here. Welcome to you all. If you can come and find yourself a seat, we'll begin our worship service. My name is Eric Gustafson. I'll be leading you in worship this morning. And I have uh, a team that's helping me, and I'm just grateful for them. And glad to have you here because you contribute. You're like the choir of this worship team. So thank you for serving in that role. So today's an interesting Sunday. Pastor Tim is going through the Psalms, and this week he's focusing on a Psalm of Lament. And he and I were joking that, um, you know, there's almost zero worship songs (laughs) that are songs of lament. So what I've decided to do instead is to uh, show the one song of lament that I know of as as an audio and uh, it's by Don McLean. Those of you that are my age remember him from the early 70s. And uh, he's famous because of the song American Pie and Starry Starry Night. But he also had a song on that album that was By the Waters of Babylon, We Lay Down and Wept. It's a song of the Israelites when they were in exile in Babylon and they were asked to sing songs and they were just very hard for them. So we'll listen to that and then we'll sing songs that... Point us to God. As we go through difficulties, trials, or grief and loss, or disappointments, that God has promised to go through those things with us. You know, the Psalm 23 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. So we're going to, going to focus on songs of encouragement in those kinds of times as we sing. So let's begin by just listening to this song, By the Waters of Babylon. sing songs of hope.
morning. Um, if you're visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we're glad you're here with us this morning. If you are visiting, just a little bit about us. We're going to be about uh, three things as a church. We're going to be about reaching people with the gospel, growing to be like Christ, and serving other people. And so if you have a, a bulletin, there's kind of ways to do each of those things listed in there. And when it comes to reaching people with the gospel, we believe the way to do that is by being active in our community and reaching out to our neighbors and building relationships that way. Um, when it comes to growing to be like Christ, one of the ways we want to invite you to do that is by joining a small group we have. A uh, number of small groups we have starting shortly. So we're going to go through the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And so in your bulletin, um, there are a list of the small groups that will be starting and going through that book. We'd invite you to participate in one of those. If you're, a, if you're leading one of those groups, or I know some of some existing small groups are also going through that. If you need, if you're a leader and you need a copy of the DVD, you can talk to me and I will, I will get you that. But we'd love to have you be part of one of those groups as we um, go through that together. A couple other announcements. I know we have a group here from Honey Rock, so we're glad you guys are here. And so after the service at 10:30. Um, we will have you guys join us over in the wing over there. We'll have some um, snack for you guys to talk a little bit more about our church. We'd love to have you join us for that. Um, everybody else, after the service at 10.30, we'll have Sunday school starting downstairs. And then at 10.45, we'll meet back in here to discuss the sermon um, and just talk a little bit more about that. As we continue in our time of worship, one of the ways you desire to worship is through giving of tithes and offerings. There are boxes on the back wall you can drop tithes and offerings in, or you can give online at tlefc.org slash give. If you're visiting or new, please know we're not like, expecting you to give, but we want this service to be a gift to you. But if you're a regular attender member here and you want to give, those are the ways you can do that. 
With that, let's pray together. Father, we come in this morning as we prepare to look at Your Word and when we see the psalmist lamenting, we, we acknowledge that there is much, frankly, to lament over, maybe in our own personal lives, but certainly in the state of the world, whether it's people we know and love who are sick or who are hurting, whether it's through people we don't even know, but just situations we know of across the world where things are not as they should be. We acknowledge that we live in a broken and fallen world and things are not as they should. And our hearts break for those who are hurting, for those who are suffering. We mourn our own sinfulness, our own inability to live the life we know you have called us to live. And yet even in the midst of our own pain and the pain of those around us, we trust that you are good. God, would you show us this morning how to hold those two truths together, that there is pain, but your promises for good are still true. That we'd be able to hold those things together. Would you show us what that looks like and would we rejoice in your good and perfect plan for this universe you have created, even in the midst of trial, suffering, Would we cling to your promises of goodness as we wait for the day when you will make all things right? God, for those who are here this morning or those around the world who are just in a place of current, deep, acute suffering, would you be with them? Would you come make your presence feel real to them when they know that you are with them through that pain and suffering? Would you bring healing where it's needed? Would you bring comfort where it's needed? And would you draw all our minds to be fixed on you this morning as we continue in worship? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Continue in worship by reading some scripture together and then just sing a few more songs. So, this will be a responsive reading. Let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's Word and uh, follow the words on the screen, and then we'll sing. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or even threatened with death? As the scripture says, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered by sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love.
Father, we, we look forward to that day. We're just saying that we would meet on that beautiful shore. But until that day, help us to be faithful in glorifying you and in learning from you as we come to your word. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I find it striking how like, the same events can elicit kind of different reactions depending on the context that they happen in. Right? Like, Lord willing, in a few months, my wife Vanessa, who was just up here playing, will give birth to our fourth child. And like, when that day comes, when that child's born, like if everything goes right, we will hear that child cry. First sound that child, my child will cry. And like, that will be a joyful noise. Like, with the means the baby's healthy, it'll be great to hear that cry. But like, three months later, like, four in the morning, like that same cry is not going to be nearly as, not going to bring nearly as much joy to my heart. It's going to be a very different experience. But even then, like at least like infants, when they cry, if they cry for good reasons typically, right? Either they're hungry or they need to be changed or they're too hot or they're too cold. Like they're crying to communicate something. But toddlers, when they cry, sometimes the reasons aren't quite so rational. Like, and I'm not going to throw my own kids under the bus by, by telling you the reasons they've cried, but like, luckily there's many parents on the Internet who don't have any such qualms. Right? They're willing to share the silly reasons their kids cry. And so we have examples like, like this kid right, who's on the ground crying because the Golden Gate Bridge isn't actually golden. Right? Or there's this kid right, who's crying because she wanted ravioli for dinner and the parent made ravioli for dinner and then she didn't want ravioli for dinner. Right? Or this kid... <laughs> or one more this is, my, this is my, my favorite one he suddenly wanted his cycling backpack which he then takes to the park because it doesn't actually exist like the unmistakable lesson we learn from all of these right? from any crying whether it's an infant or a toddler is that like no one needs to teach us how to cry like, it is one of the universal realities of being human, that we know what it is to cry. We are we're hardwired to experience and express our hurts and our sorrows and our pains. Sometimes they're real, sometimes they're imagined, right? but we're wired to be able to express those kind of sorrows. And nowhere in the Bible is that more evident than in these sections we call laments. Right? But laments are more than just complaining or whining or expressing sorrow or grief. Right? Like, kind of what I tend to think of, I think of lament, like a synonym for complaint almost. But they're, but they're more than that. Right? Laments are prayers that flow out of pain and hurt. And they are prayers that, as we pray them, they lead us to remember and trust in the goodness of God, even in the midst of that pain. So we see laments in various places throughout the Bible. The prophet Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because so much of the book Jeremiah is filled with laments. Jeremiah even wrote a book called Lamentations. 
And there's other various examples throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But one of the most common places that we see lament is in the book of Psalms. And so this morning we're going to look at Psalm 77 together, which is a psalm of lament. This is now our, our fourth week in the book of Psalms. We're kind of spending five weeks here in this book looking at one of one each of the five different kinds of psalms. Right? So the five different categories of psalms, broadly speaking. And of course, there's many different psalms that fit into each category. Right? So choosing a psalm to preach for each given category can be a bit of a challenge. But choosing which psalm to preach for this Sunday, for a psalm of lament, was the biggest challenge yet. Because like, there are so many of them. I was just talking to Eric Gustafson, who was leading us in worship, and as he mentioned, like, he noted how rare it is to, to find like, Christian songs that are laments. Right? There's not many of them. And yet in the Psalms, which is in part like the songbook of Israel, like, depending on how you count exactly, about 33% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. There's this drastic dichotomy between the songs that we sing and the songs that Israel sang. Like we don't, we don't do lament in our songs. And by we, I don't just mean like our church here and now. I mean like Christian songwriters for the past several hundred years have not done a good job of incorporating lament into their songs. Or if they've written them, like churches have not done a good job of incorporating them into their worship. And so instead we sing songs like it is well with my soul. Which, for the record, like I love that song. Like it's a great song, and there are some deep truths in it. But like, do you know the story of this song? It's written by this man named Horatio Spafford. And so Horatio and his wife Anna, they had four children. They were all scheduled to sail across the Atlantic from the United States over to England to join the evangelist D.L. Moody in his work. And at the last minute, Horatio was forced to stay behind to attend from business matters. And so Anna and his four children set off without him. And on that journey, the Spafford ship collides with another ship and sinks. So the wife Anna was saved, but all four children died in the accident. And upon arriving in England, Anna sends Horatio a telegram notifying him what happened. So then Horatio books passage as fast as he can to go to England to join his wife. And as he's traveling across the Atlantic, the captain of the ship he's on like, takes the time to point out to him about where their ship, the ship of his children, went down, where his children had died. And, and shortly after seeing that sight that Spafford wrote the song, It is well with my soul. And that song has lyrics like, Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ had regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. And on the one hand, like that's admirable faith. And of course it's true that like, no matter what trials may come, or the, the fact that Christ shed his blood for us is the most important thing we can know or possibly cling to. So there's great truth there. But on the other hand, if I'm being honest, if I had just lost all my kids in an accident, like, like 
I don't think my heart would be there. Like, like, thankfully, I've lived a relatively tragedy-free life, and so I don't have a lot to test this on, but like, if something like that happened in my life, I don't think my heart would be able to say in that moment, like, it is well with my soul. And so there's this danger, right, that if those are the songs we sing in the midst of tragedy, like it paints this picture for us that those who have real and genuine faith can kind of just shake off their trials because they know Jesus. And so that when someone experiences tragedy and they can't get there, they can't just say, oh, it is well with my soul, like it can push them into deeper despair. And leave them feeling almost guilty that they can't handle tragedy with acceptance and trust. Right? Or like, think of the song, like, Trading My Sorrows, right? which it was quite popular, at least when I was in college. And the chorus of that song says, I'm trading my sorrows, I'm trading my shame, I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. Like, I'm trading my sickness, I'm trading my pain, I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. As if, if you have Jesus then getting over sorrow is just a matter of trading it in for joy. As if you, as if, like, if you can't just willy-nilly trade in your sorrow, then there, there must be something wrong with you. Right? Something must be broken. Like your faith must not be quite right. And I'm, I fear like, that's a deeply damaging perspective for people who are walking through real pain. On the other hand, right, when Paul talks about joy and sorrow in the same sentence. He's, in Second Corinthians, he says this, that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Right? It's not trading one in for the other, it's the two coexisting together. I think that's a far more helpful way of understanding how we walk through this life in the midst of sorrow, yet in the hope that God promises. Right? So all I have to say, right? like, in the past couple hundred years, we have not done a great job in our songs and in churches of teaching people how to walk through hard times. But the songwriters of Israel, the, the psalmists, they did a far better job of teaching God people how to walk through these hard and dark seasons while still maintaining faith in the goodness of God. And that's what laments are all about, how we walk through hard seasons but still maintain faith in the goodness of God. In the word of Mark Vergop, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Right? Those two things, the pain we feel in a moment and the promises of God's goodness often seem to be conflicting in us, the paradox in them. But lament is like how we wrestle with that paradox. And Mark Vergop wrote this quote in a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. The subtitle of that book is Rediscovering the Grace of Lament. And because just the topic of lament is so little talked about in Christian circles so often, like, I didn't know much about it myself until I read this book a year and a half ago. And so I just want to say two things about this book. First, in the interest of giving credit where it's due, like much of what I'm going to say this morning is influenced by this book. So I want to give that book credit. Right. But then also, if like, anything I say this morning like, makes you feel a desire to look more into like, what lament is or learn more about lament, then I would just commend this book to you. And in this book, 
Virgop lays out four, kind of a four-step pattern that we consistently see in, in the laments throughout the Bible. He, he calls these four steps, turn, complain, ask, and trust. So as we walk through Psalm 77 together this morning, I want to look at those four steps with you. So if you look at the outline you have in your bulletin or up here on the screen, you'll notice, like I've, I've changed it a little bit, I've condensed Virgov four steps down into three. I've kind of combined complain and ask just into one point. And then I've reworded them a little bit to fit better with the language of this particular psalm. But it's the same basic idea. We're going to seek the Lord, ask hard questions, and remember God's mighty deeds. That's kind of the pattern we see for lamenting in this psalm. And so with that in mind, let's read this psalm together. Psalm 77, verses 1 through 20. I cry aloud to the Lord, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? As his steadfast love forever ceased, are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the year of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonder of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The cloud poured out water. The sky gave forth thunder. Your arrow flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So as we consider this psalm, the very first thing we see, which is like so easy to overlook... Like something we have to know that the very first step in lament is, is seeking the Lord. In these first three verses, Asaph, who's writing the psalm, said that he's crying out to God, that he's seeking God, that he's remembering God. Like the thing that's so easy to overlook is that lament at its core, ultimately, right, is an act of faith. It's an acknowledgement of God and His sovereign power to change things. 
Okay, I've said this before, but like for me at least, it can be hard when I'm in pain, when I'm suffering, when I'm having hard feelings, to bring those to God, right? especially negative feelings. Right? Like I worry that God will disappoint, be disappointed or be upset with me if I bring my struggles and my doubts before Him. Right? I worry that like, my cries of pain and my hurt and my doubts will cause God to see me as unfaithful or unbelieving. But in reality, nothing says I don't believe more than giving God the silent treatment. Like silence is the ultimate expression of unbelief. Like silence in the face of hardship and trial and pain will kill your soul. And so like, I don't know where each of you personally is at this morning. Like maybe you've just entered a hard season of life. Maybe something's going on right now. Maybe there's some new issue that is causing you pain and hurt. And if that's you this morning, then just like learn the lesson of these psalms and bring those hurt, bring those pain, bring those trials to God. Don't worry about having the right words to pray. Don't worry about God thinking you're complaining. Bring them to God. Or maybe there's some issue that you've been walking through in your life that you've dealt with for so long that you've kind of given up any hope of God working in. And if that's you, I can encourage you to bring those issues to God once again. Asaph says in verse 2 that his hand is outstretched without wearying, that his soul refuses to be comforted. Just to say that he keeps bringing his prayer to God over and over again without wearying. And we've we've walked through painful issues for like an extended period of time for a long time. It can go one of two ways. Either we can kind of find ways to numb the pain. We can try to act like it doesn't exist, or we can let our soul be comforted by platitudes that don't actually solve the problem. We can kind of, kind of ignore the pain, deny it, or the other option tends to be we can entirely give up hope. We entirely give up any belief that in God and we just run away. We, we conclude that God, like he must have let this thing happen to me. Like, and if God isn't going to help me through this, either he isn't real or he's not powerful enough to help me. And so like these extended periods of time of pain and suffering can drive people from God, especially when they don't bring their hurt and their pains to God. But Asaph doesn't do either of those things. He doesn't allow the pain to be numbed, but he also doesn't run from God. Instead, he, he keeps crying out. He keeps praying, even in the midst of his pain. He refuses to be silent. He refuses to give in to the temptation to commit that act of unbelief. Right? Instead, he prays in his pain. And by praying through his pain, he expresses his faith in the goodness of God, even in the midst of that pain. And so if you're here this morning and you're walking through pain, I've got to encourage you and invite you to do the same thing. Seek the Lord in your pain. The first step of lament. We see the second step in verses like 4 through 9. And that is to ask hard questions. And so, like, we tend to have this inclination. 
which I think is good most of the time, to like not want to be seen as questioning God. We don't want to be seen as answering back to God or questioning God, which is a good thing, generally. But like, if we just said, if those questions already exist in our heart, but then choosing not to bring them to God doesn't do anyone any good. So if the questions are in us, like the best course of action is to bring them to God. And we see Asaph do that here. He asks six questions in quick succession. His six questions are this. Like, will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And so like, I don't know what questions you might have for God in the midst of any pain you may be going through, but I don't think they can be any more pointed than, God, have you forgotten to be gracious? Or God, are your promises null and void? Or God, has your steadfast love ceased forever? And if Asaph can ask those questions and then get published in the Bible, I don't think you have to about your questions being too pointed for God. So bring your questions. Ask your hard questions to God. As you walk through pain and suffering, don't be afraid to ask the questions that weigh on your heart. These kinds of questions, they reveal an important truth about the human experience which is this. Like, there are certain things that we can know to be true in our head. Like, there, there are certain things that we can know. Like, in my head, I know these things to be true, and yet my heart can struggle to believe them at the same time. Right? Asaph in his head knows that God hasn't forgotten to be gracious. Like, he knows intellectually that God's promises are not null and void. Like, we see that in the rest of the psalm. And yet, yeah, like, in these verses, he's expressing the heartfelt feelings of his heart. In his pain and suffering, his heart is having a hard time believing what his head knows. And so he brings his questions to God. And so like, then the fundamental question of lament is, like, when I'm walking through these hard seasons, like, what do I do to help my heart believe what my head knows to be true? How do we bridge the chasm between the pain we are feeling and what we know to be true of God's goodness? And at least in part, the answer this psalm gives us is that we should remember. The key moment in the psalm is found in verses 10 through 12, where Asaph writes, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. So when like, doubt creep in, and when, when, his, when Asaph's present pain is causing him to question the goodness of God, Asaph commits himself to remembering God's mighty deeds and meditating on them. And then the rest of the psalm, he does just that. And verses 13 through 20 are an 
extended remembrance and meditation on the mighty deeds of God. The mighty deeds that God has done for His people throughout history. And in particular, he focuses on one mighty deed above all the others. And that is the event of the Exodus. Verses 19 and 20, Asaph says, Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. That's clearly referring to the Exodus when God's people were enslaved in Egypt and God sent Moses to lead the people out of slavery. And the climax of that story is the crossing of the Red Sea. When the Israelites are seemingly trapped with, with the Red Sea in front of them and Egypt's army closing in behind them, like all hope seems lost. But then God parts the Red Sea and the people of Israel walk through on dry land and are saved. And the reason that event is so important for Asaph here is like that event with the, re- the definitive redeeming work of God in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament is there a clearer picture of God saving His people from a terrible situation when all hope was lost. And remembering, for Asaph, remembering how God worked to save His people in the past helps him trust God's goodness in His current trouble. One of the keys to bridging that chasm between pain and God's promises of goodness is remembering. And we can be helped by remembering any of, of God's mighty deeds. Maybe it's remembering creation. When I'm in a funk, or when I'm dealing with some problem, it's often like being out in creation that I find like incredibly helpful. It's helpful for me to remember like if God made all this, then my problem is pretty small in comparison. Or Queen, we can remember any of the many times in the Old Testament that God shows up and cares for His people in the midst of trouble. But ultimately, the place that we need to run, the place that we should run when we need to remember God's promised goodness, is the cross. To His mighty deeds that He did through Jesus on the cross. Just as Asaph ran to the defining redemptive work of the Old Testament, we ought to run to the defining redemptive work of all time, which is the cross. On the cross, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died on our behalf. Each of us, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against the Holy God, deserved nothing but eternal punishment. But God sent Jesus, who lived a sinless life, the sinless life we failed to live, to die the death that we deserve to die on the cross. That by believing in Him, like our sins can be forgiven and we can experience eternal life. At that faith, right? believing in Jesus, it's the only way for our sins to be forgiven and for each of us to experience eternal life. Like I know, like if you've come to church for a long time, if you've been in church most of your life, like you've heard that over and over and over again. And it's easy to think, like, yeah, I know, like that's what people need to hear in order for them to become Christians and to be, be saved. But that message of what Jesus did, right, the gospel, it's not just a message about how to become a Christian. 
It's also the key to all of the Christian life. We must remember what Jesus did and remind ourselves of the gospel daily. And there are a number of reasons for that, but one of the reasons why it's so important to remember what Jesus did for us day after day that it's because it helps us in times of pain and trial. And so to see what I mean, I just want to like, think back and think through some of the questions that Asaph asked in this psalm and then consider what Jesus did in light of those questions. And so Asaph asked the question, like, will God never again be favorable? When we remember what Jesus did on the cross, we remember that God is favorable to us because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Or Asaph asked a question like, has God's steadfast love ceased forever? But Jesus is a guarantee that God's love has not ceased. Asaph asked the question, are his promises at an end for all time? But Paul tells us in the New Testament, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Jesus is the guarantee that God's promises are true. Asaph asked, has God forgotten to be gracious? But there is no greater act of grace in all of history than that God the Father would send His own Son to die in order that sinful, rebellious people could be forgiven and experience eternal life. Believing in Jesus and in His death and burial and resurrection is, yes, first how we restore our relationship with God. So if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, first and foremost, then I would invite you and encourage you to trust in Jesus. That's how we enter into eternal life. But for those of us who have trusted Jesus long ago, remembering Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection is no less important. Remembering God's mighty deeds is an essential part of lament. And no deed is greater, no deed is mightier than what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus' work on the cross is a a promise that no matter how much pain or suffering you may be going through right now, God is still good. His promises are still true. If that doesn't mean if we just stop and think about Jesus and the cross enough, then like, our pain will magically go away, that we'll magically feel better. That isn't how life works. But it is the way, by remembering the cross of Jesus, it is the way that we can have hope in the midst as we walk through suffering. Remembering the cross of Jesus is the way we can, as Paul said, be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Remembering what God does for us helps us to bridge that gap between the pain we feel now and the promises of God's goodness. Let's pray. Father, we come and we keenly aware, some of us more than others, that there is pain 
in the world. We all are walking through various trials, various hardships. Some of us are in deep emotional pain this morning. Some of us may be in deep physical pain this morning. And there's just a, there's a hurt and there's a pain that can cause our minds to wonder where you are, where your goodness is. As we sit here now, God, would you remind us of your goodness Would you remind us of the mighty works you have done in the past, the mighty work you've done in each of our own lives, in our own histories, but especially of the mighty work you did through Jesus on the cross. God, would we, would you give us boldness to ask our hard questions to you freely? Would we not try to hide or suppress our pain and our question from you, but do we come to you? Do we bring our hurt? Do we bring our pains? Knowing that there may not be an immediate fix, that living in this broken world just may mean of walking through that suffering but we bring those hurts, bring those pains to you, trusting your ultimate good plan for this world. We look forward to the day when all hurts, all pains would be undone, when you would wipe away every tear, when there would be no more sin or suffering or death. When Jesus returns and ushered in the new heavens and the new earth, we will live on that new earth, free of pain, free of suffering. But we cling to hope in that day as we wait. We deal with suffering here and now. Do we cling to the beautiful picture of that day that you have promised us, trusting that your promises are sure and they are good. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. By way of benediction, I want to read a little bit more of Romans 8 that we read as a responsive reading earlier. This is, I think, verses that many of us are familiar with. And yet, one of the things that strikes me that I never noticed before preparing this sermon is that right in the middle of this passage are... Paul quotes a psalm of lament and then reminds himself of Jesus in response to that lament. So hear these words the way of benediction. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, here's where he quotes the Psalm of Lament. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But then Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you go from here remembering that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are dismissed.